Have you ever been past an old family photo and peered closely at the faces, trying to make out some familiar features? Maybe it's a nose, or is it the eyes or the shape of a face? Often the faces are obscured by large hats or spectacles, or blurred by the damage of time or the poor quality of the original photograph. Then suddenly, there's the moment of delight when a family member is spotted. Look, there she is, the woman with the fur collar. Doesn't she just look like Auntie so-and-so? And so on. Most of us are lucky enough to have a few of these old family photos around our homes, in picture frames, up on a mantelpiece, or stored away in boxes, maybe up in the attic or under a bed. My family is no exception. However, I got a bit of a surprise a few years ago when my cousin shared a photo with me of our grandmother. Instead of the typical portrait or family group, there was my beloved grandmother, my mamo, as a young woman in her 20s, grinning at the camera while perched on a bicycle, holding a rifle in one hand and a fishing rod in the other. Taken around 1918, she's wearing her come in the mon uniform made up of a felt hat, tie, white shirt and long skirt. Seeing my grandmother in uniform with a rifle was quite a shock. I wasn't aware she was a supporter of physical force nationalism. It transpired that Maureen McGavock, later Beaumont, went on to join the executive of Come in the Mon in 1920, and along with other members, voted against the 1921 Anglo-Irish Treaty, leading to a split in the organisation in February 1922. Seeing this photo, it suddenly dawned on me that my grandmother, who lived with me in Dublin until her death in 1972, when I was five years old, was one of the so-called Furies and diehards who President Cosgrave proclaimed in a speech that these were the women who, and I quote, at their extremist, can find no outlet so satisfying as destruction, sheer destruction. Yet despite this demonisation of anti-treaty women in the aftermath of the Irish Revolution, my grandmother, and many others like her, went on to make a significant and meaningful contribution to the Irish Free State and to Irish society. In my grandmother's case, she did this as a housewife and mother, as an educator, and as an activist through her membership of the Irish Countrywomen's Association, the ICA, and as president of the National University Women Graduates Association. Discovering this photo of Maureen with a rifle and sharing her little-known story of activism during and after the Irish Revolution and Civil War has led to a new history project in collaboration with a number of academics, including Dr Mary McAuliffe and Dr Fanula Walsh of University College Dublin, both of whom are here with me today. And we're also working with the ICA and Seroptimists Ireland on this new project. Together, we want to uncover the afterlives and trace the life stories of lesser known activist women. We want to better understand and acknowledge the contributions of the women frozen in time in old photos in homes and attics around the country to the Ireland that we live in today. So hello there, my name is Professor Katrina Beaumont of London South Bank University. And in this podcast, we want to share with you some of the stories of women you may have never heard of before and think about how you too can go about discovering the afterlives and contributions of the women in your family, your community, and in women's organisations that you may belong to. So together we can celebrate and acknowledge the lives and afterlives of activist women in Ireland. 
So I'm going to introduce you now to Mary and Fanula, who will let you know what work they're doing and how this fits in with our project. Hi, this is Mary McAuliffe here from UCD, and I've been working on coming among women and women activists for a number of years now through this decade of centenaries. But like uh, Katrina, I have had some personal connection with the histories of these women in that both my grandmother and my granddad, my maternal granddad, were involved in Cuminamon. They were in their late teens during the revolutionary period. And their stories I only discovered in recent years, even though I knew both of them as a young child. But like so many of these women, they didn't talk about what they did. And that silence is part of the history that we have of Cuminamon. And what I know now of Nana Mac, as I uh, knew my grandmother, uh, Joanna O'Connor uh, from North Kerry and Auntie Josie, Josie uh, Kennelly went on to become Nolan, was that they were both senior activists in Cuminamon in the North Kerry area. In fact, they may have been in the same room as your grandmother in that they both came up from Kerry to the 1920 Cuminamon Conference. I'm sure it's the first time both of them left Kerry. And it was the one that was held in the White Forest Church space. They had a, a hall there um, on White Forest Street. Um, and there's a wonderful photograph of the executive of Cuminamon on the stage. And you have Countess Markovich. And I, I, it really thrills me to think of my grandmother in the same room with Countess Markovich and all the other members of the executive of Cuminamon. So your grandmother must have been there. And the stories I have of her are ones I've only discovered as an adult. Even though I knew her as a child, she just did not mention it. Except I remember one day walking up the small village uh, we lived in, in North Kerry, uh, and there was an older man coming towards us. And she made us cross the road and she said, we don't speak with him. He was on the other side. My grandmother, my paternal grandmother was anti-treaty. My maternal grandmother was probably pro-treaty because that family were, were later Fina Gael. So uh, they would have been pro-treaty. But again, I didn't know until I became an adult. And both of them were very involved in, in traumatic incidents that um, I will talk about as we go through this podcast. But now I'll hand over to Fanula. Hi, um, I'm Fanula Walsh. I'm a lecturer in modern Irish history here in UCD. And my interest in this period of Irish history um, initially came about through focus on the First World War. And it also came right about actually through a family connection and through coming across a document. So I was um, doing a course as an undergrad um, looking at um, the Irish First World War experience. And my lecturer told us to rummage through attics to see what we could find, that every family had some connection. I wasn't sure about this, um, but when I went looking, I came across a document relating to the 1916 Easter Rising. But this was for giving um, medals of bravery to the Red Cross and St. John Ambulance, um, women who'd served as nursing aides during the rebellion. And on this document, there was one name that was circled. And this is the name of Isabel Meredith, who was my great-grandmother. And I had known um, that her brother, Dermot Meredith, had served in the Royal Dublin Fusiliers during the First World War and was invalided out. But I didn't know anything about my great grandmother's experience. And so I wanted to learn more, but I discovered there wasn't very much written about Irish women in the First World War period and not that much about Irish women in that period generally. And so I started looking, I started researching more, and that ended up in a process and a book that took about 10 years to write. And then as I continued with that research, I wanted to know more about what women were doing in Ireland generally and all the different movements that are happening at that time. 
to trace stories of people like my great grandmother, but also the women in Common Amman, the women of all these other organizations, how they were going about managing their domestic lives, but also um, participating in activism in the political sphere, um, in work. And in recent times, I've been looking at my father's family um, during that period, a small area of County Kerry, where there was a um, major incident in April 1923 during the Civil War. And this was a, an action in the Civil War that my grandfather in his final years and final months um, kept coming back to, something that he'd witnessed as a small child and that he hadn't spoken about for decades afterwards, but it had a lingering effect in his memory and had played a significant role for the local community afterwards. And so in recent times, I've been looking at the impact that this, some of these conflicts can have on communities for decades afterwards and what they mean for women's lives as they struggle to put things together in the aftermath um, of conflict. It's so wonderful to hear you both talk about your own family experience. And I should mention that alongside this podcast, there'll be a list of resources. And that, of course, will include the wonderful publications of Mary and Fanula, which I can highly recommend. I'm not biased at all. They're great. And I think what's really important and part of what we're trying to draw out with this project is to, is to appreciate and realise that in our cases, we've been talking about um, kind of grandparents and grandmothers, that they had whole lives and they weren't just our grandparents. They actually were young women and young men and they had their different beliefs and they engaged in different kinds of activities. And, and it's so important and so rewarding, actually, to go back and look at some of the, um, the experiences that they had, whether those were experiences they shared Um, with us personally or whether they're experiences that we're able to uh, reveal um, through doing research. And again, we'll be providing some tips later on how you yourselves, if you'd like to find out more about your own families um, or other women that you know, um, that you'll be able to engage in some of that research yourselves, which is so much easier to do now than certainly when I started out. Um, I think I'm the oldest of, yes, by far, of the three of us here when I started out doing research back in the 1980s. So one just as an example of that so for my grandmother she was very much you know she, as i say she lived with me until i was five and she looked after me and she spoiled me rotten and i always associate her as this you know your typical granny but what amazed me was when i started doing this research on her i discovered that she you know she really was quite a character and one of the stories that intrigued me about her um, and this was a story she did tell herself she gave a witness statement to the irish bureau of military history in May 1950, where she discussed her uh, role in Common the Mon, although you know she didn't give that many details, so she she obviously selected what she wished to share, knowing that this would be a public resource, and that's something you know that as historians and we need to think about what stories people do tell and what they decide not to tell. And as Mary said, how do we work with these around these silences, um, and do we respect those silences? Um, but anyway, the story that she told in this that, that I really loved um, and that I have shared with my own kids, which makes them think what a kind of mad great granny they had. And she recalled her first encounter with the Irish volunteers. And that was in 1915 when she was a language student here at UCD. And we're sitting in UCD today making this podcast. So it's really lovely to feel that she it was it wasn't on the same site, but that she would have been involved in and studied at UCD. And I love that connection. So Maureen, in her witness statement, she recalled that she was asked by a member of the Irish Volunteers, known as JJ Ginger O'Connell, to store two violin cases containing containing ammunition and revolvers. So you can imagine here she is a, a student um, 
and then been asked um, by this associate, she was she knew him, she was friends with him, passed over two violent cases full of guns and ammunition. And she agreed. And she hid the cases in her digs in Dominican Hall, Dublin, where she was living as a student. Again, I just can't get over sort of the adventurous spirit to, to, to agree to something like this. I mean, you know, highly illicit. And I presume, I mean, I don't know, she, she doesn't say where she hid them, I'm imagining under the bed, but it just, it, it's such a great story. They held on to them um, for a couple, a couple of months, um, she and her flatmate, uh, her roommate, and then she remembers that they were picked up just before the um, Easter 1916, which of course is an extremely important date. So it's highly likely that these arms um, were used during the Easter Rising. Although she does say in her witness statement that when she was out with these friends, some of whom were clearly very involved in the Irish Volunteers, that when they talked about a, an upcoming fight, she didn't think that they were serious and she paid little attention to that suggestion. As well as just kind of trying to imagine where she might have hidden them, I did wonder if she ever peek inside the violin cases to see what was in them. Again, she doesn't give that detail. And this is when it's so frustrating that you wish you could just you know, get someone back even for 10 minutes to have a quick chat with them. Um, but unfortunately, obviously, we can't do that. She wasn't in Dublin for the Easter Rising, so we won't know whether she would have decided to perhaps participate or support in any way. She was actually in on her university um, Easter break up in Belfast, so she missed she missed those events. I have to say that when I read this story, as, and, and it was you know um, written down in her own words, um, I just it just reminded me so much of a classic Hollywood crime movie, of this young student kind of you know walking away from a meeting with two violin cases and then bringing them back to you know a halls where the nuns were in charge. Don't forget in Dominican Hall, and then hiding them under the bed. So it's given me an incredibly different perspective, a different a different um, interpretation around um, who my grandmother actually was, and that's really one of the things that we want to. to to draw out in this project is that we see these people um, as in the, in, in the round and not just at one moment in their life, but throughout their whole life. And that we get to know um, whether they're a family member or someone in our community, we get to a much greater understanding of who they were and why they sometimes did what they did. And that just brings us on to that, the issue that of some kind of difficult history. So Mary's already mentioned and does a lot of work around trauma in history and Fanula has also referred to that. Um, and it is something that you need to be very conscious of. And I think particularly when you're looking at family history, because you have to be very sensitive to the different feelings and reactions and experiences that different family members may have around um, uh, uh, the activities or the beliefs of someone in their own family. So I wonder, um, maybe Mary or Fanula, if you'd like to talk a little bit about how you deal with that in your work. Yes, and, and just before I talk about that, I wonder, did the um, Cumanaman women use violin cases a lot? Because there is the other story of Maureen Cregan, who then went on to marry James Ryan of the famous Ryan family of Tongpool, took violin cases full of arms and ammunition down to Austin Stack uh, just before the rising, because, of course, they were going to rise in Kerry. So she traveled down by train with her violin case. So all of these details, you know, these women were wandering around the country with arms and ammunition, with messages. If they had been caught and searched, but of course they were using their femininity to get away with it. You know, they were they were young um, and soldiers, if they were stopped, wouldn't search them, wouldn't look into the violin case or the bag full of bombs. Um, one woman in Kerry that I was researching, uh, Maya Hearn, during the War of Independence, uh, walked to the local train station, which was surrounded by black and tans, and she says this in her witness statement, uh, and, you know, knew she was getting bags full of bombs off the train, which had come from Limerick and previously Dublin, 
um, and was trying to figure out how she would get them out of the station. And she saw a trainee priest getting off the train and talked him into walking out with her. She figured that soldiers, which she was right, wouldn't stop a woman and a priest. And they didn't. And she walked away from that station, which they, she said there were about 30 or 40 blackened hands and auxiliaries with her bag of bombs. And so they were so clever and, and uh, the nerve they must have had to do that. But um, the trauma stories as well, and, and in many ways, uh, that's the research I've been doing over the last this last decade of centenaries, looking at the militancy of the women, but also looking about the impact of war on women's lives during this period, militant and non-militant, the violence that they often suffered in a guerrilla war, because you have to remember the men went on the run, but the women were in the homes and in the communities. And when the reprisals were happening, they were on the front line. And there was also the controlling of women through things like forcible hair cropping, which was done by both the Crown Forces and the uh, IRA uh, to make, you know, the IRA to doing it to make uh, women stop company keeping. But personally, in doing the research, the story I, I got, it, 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 it involves both my grandmother, Joe, and my grand-aunt, uh, Josie. Uh, there was a, an ambush in 1920 in uh, North Kerry in Garthaglana near Nocnagashal, in which there's a song about it. Three young IRA men, unarmed, walking the country road, are taken into a field and basically executed. Now, there had been four of them, one escaped, but Welsh and Lyons and Dalton. They were shot in reprisal to, uh, for the shooting of a RIC um, district inspector that had happened in Listowel some time earlier. Lyons was from the village I grew up in, um, in Kerry, and it was up to the women of Cumannamon to get the bodies, coffin them, bring them back to the church, do the burial rituals, both religious and republican, do all of that in a countryside that was in uproar in a state of martial law with out of control black and tans and auxiliaries at this stage and RIC, a lot of them drunk a lot of the time who were feeling under such pressure themselves and that they were surrounded by the enemy. So they were taking their anger uh, and their feelings. And, and many of them, of course, were men recruited into the army uh, who had come off the back of four years in uh, fighting in the First World War. Um, so the bodies were taken to Ballymore and Barracks in Tralee, where the women got on the train from Listole to go to Tralee and bring them back. They found them mutilated and naked. Uh, made sure they were coffined. When they got back to Listole, the place was in uproar and they were beaten uh, every step of the way from the train station to the church in Listole because it was only the women of Cumannamon that could bring the coffin. The, the IRA men could not appear in public. And then the three bodies were taken by their families and Cumannamon women from Listole to the outlying parishes that they were from. They were from three different parishes, including Dewar, where Lyons was from. Um, and that is the one story I knew of my grandmother, the, the funeral of Jeremiah Lyons in Dubois, um and his burial in the Republican plot and how the women took the rifles in to the graveyard as it was surrounded by the Crown forces and, fire, and got those shots fired over the grave. And funnily enough, during this decade, when I was doing that research and getting more into that story, I came across a photograph of the burial of Jeremiah Lyons and the women at the graveside. It was taken by a young medical doctor who went on to become the doctor in Listowel, who was home from college, home from UCC, I think, and he had a camera. 
So there's about four or five very bad quality, very grainy, but really just atmospheric photographs of the funeral and the burial. And it's all women. That's what you see. You see the women are doing all of these rituals because the men cannot be seen. They will be lifted. They will be taken in and who knows what would happen to them. But interestingly, part of that story is my aunt Josie uh, came into Listole after the execution of the three young men to see if they were in Listole barracks. And her story that she told to her son, who then passed it down, is that they knew not to talk to the blackened hands in the stole to find an officer, a local RIC officer, because the blackened hands would take you up down the side of the barracks and that's where offences of a sexual nature would happen. So they understood the danger they were in, both physical and sexual, uh, from the enemy troops. And yet they did what they did, like your uh, grandmother. And I know both my uh, my grandmother and my granddad took dispatches and gathered intelligence and did all the usual things that Common Amon did. Uh, and then the sadness of the split on the treaty, because they were one was pro-treaty and anti-treaty. Yet they come together in afterlives. I remember my mother telling a story about how she never knew how her aunt Josie, who was pro-treaty, knew my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, um, and another aunt who was also in Cuminamon, at but at weddings and funerals that they were invited to, they would be in a corner chatting away and telling everyone else to go away. They had things to talk about. So they obviously knew each other. And I think the fact that their afterlives in the Irish Free State, which saw these women as inconvenient furies, as diehards, as people who needed to be pushed back into the domestic gave them a unity of purpose, but also the fact that they were trying to hold together families in the aftermath of a decade of violence. And so they were, even though they were, they had different politics. My grandmother was a diehard Dev supporter. Uh, the other grandmother was true blue, come in the Gael, then Fianna Gael. They had a unity of purpose for being women who had experienced what they experienced and were now bringing up families in a a country that didn't deliver what was promised and what they signed up for. And so I am always glad to hear that they, that the split didn't keep them separate, that they actually respected and admired each other and talked to each other. And that's what I think, you know, people listening in to us, look into your family histories. You will find those stories um, and it'll be very interesting to see what you come up with interesting there is that and um, that sense of disappointment that was so common to so many of these women who were actively involved at this time whether which side of the treaty they ended up on you know we see that there's so much in their pension applications in later years and their sense of having been let down by the state that emerges afterwards um, and this whole period you know in the early 20th century first with the suffrage movement um, and then with the unionist movement, the nationalist movement, Republican movement, and during the First World War and everything happens afterwards, this is a sense that, you know, it's entering a period of optimism, of transformation, that everything's changing for women, that this is their moment for their citizenship, the world is their oyster, they can do anything, that they're no longer going to be confined to domestic space. And so, and so many of them take on, you know, active roles during this period. And I think, you know, in recent years, one of the things that's been transformed so much in the research is just the extent of the roles that not just women in the top leadership, but just the, on the ground that all the different types of things that women were doing and the sheer danger um, of that activity and the trauma that so many of them went through 
went through all of that and still there was so little recognition afterwards and um, so many women writing in plaintively decades later saying, I did all my good for my country. Um, what is there for me now? Um, why am I not being recognized? And I think, you know, one of the challenges sometimes for, for looking at this history is that we often have access now to material that perhaps wasn't available to the families immediately afterwards or material that the women themselves didn't share, that they didn't tell their families. Family secrets and um, hidden um, material that now might be in a publicly available archive, available for anybody to look at. And, you know, I, some years ago, I found myself in the National Archives in London um, going through my great granduncle's medical records from the First World War. Um, the family story was that he was gassed in the First World War, found his medical records, he'd actually been shell-shocked. Um, he spelled, spent quite a significant time in um, Dublin Castle Red Cross Hospital, um, where he's pleading to be allowed back into British Army. I have far more detail than I ever expected to have on his medical situation in those years. And sometimes it's difficult to know what you do with this. And is it appropriate for us? You know, as a historian, often we feel nosy anyway, because we spend our time reading people's personal diaries and letters. But it sometimes is an added layer um, when it's family or it's connection to a locality. When I was doing some research on um, Clash Melkin in North Kerry recently, through pension records and other material, I could find out lots of detail about people's lives late into the 20th century, financial information, medical information, information on people's relationships within their families, um, with neighbours. And again, there's a sense of how do we use this material sensitively? When I presented some of this material at a conference in Kerry, in Tralee, in February 2023, I was very conscious that there were descendants of many of these people I was speaking about in the audience and that this wasn't just history, this was something more to these families. And so I think we have to be careful sometimes how what we might find and think, oh, this is a, you know, this is a great story, um, you know, might be news to a family, might transform or challenge their idea of what their relative did. Um, and that, you know, people don't always want to hear those versions or don't always want them to be aired in public. Um, so there can be some, some difficulties or some, some things that we need to be careful about, I suppose, um, when doing this research. The much greater availability of public archives and sources like the military archives and the pension archives and others. So, so, so these are much more accessible and we're going to talk a little bit um, towards the end of our podcast about what is available and how you can access those. But absolutely, you also need to really think about potential consequences. And um, it is for me, it's wonderful that I think, and this is particularly, um, I think has evolved through the decade of centenary events is that I think Many of us feel much more comfortable, and that includes me, about talking about some of the activism of our, um, in my case, my grandmother, that perhaps previously, and, and this is not perhaps, it definitely was the case. I, I have always wanted to do some work on her as a professional historian who works on the history of female activism in Britain and Ireland, but I was always quite hesitant because I was aware that in particular my late father was quite uneasy about the fact that she was active in Common the Mawn. And when once he saw that photo, which he didn't know existed either until we saw it around 2016, he was quite uncomfortable with the idea of that photo being made public because it, it, it sent out a particular message about her as obviously a person who was 
had you know um, had a rifle for want of a better term you know it's it's very unlikely she used it because you know women you know only kind of quite few, only a small number of women come in the mall were using it but she certainly would have probably trained with it um so he he didn't want that perception of her to be the perception that was made public and and when you're working as a professional historian at universities of course you have to go through ethics panels so these are and, and historians have tended not to spend as much time thinking about ethics, perhaps because of the nature of their work. But increasingly now we are and we're having to think very carefully about how we deal with telling the stories of um, of other people. And, and, and it's not just their story, remember, because no one no one lives in isolation. So it's the impact of their story on all of those around them as well. So these are big challenges, I think, that all professional historians, but also those of us who are interested in family history need to, to think about. Um, the way I kind of got around this and, and, you know, and it doesn't mean that we can't do the work because I think we have such a wonderful, exciting opportunity at the moment, again, because of the decade of centenaries. And I think because things have changed so much in Ireland um, in, the, in the last decades and the Good Friday ag- Agreement has also, I think, opened up conversations around um, the national struggle um, that, that were, really couldn't really have happened before um, in, in any kind of meaningful way. Um, but with my dad, so so when I told him I was doing this, sort of starting this project, and it, and it really began, and thanks to Mary, because Mary invited me to be on a, a part of a symposium about the split and come in the morn in February 1922, because Mary Whiteley felt that that hadn't been well covered in the decade of sceneries. I didn't think it had been covered at all. Mm. Um, and, that, and, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. And then, I, then suddenly this was the moment, really, it was a bit of a eureka moment. And I said, oh, now I can actually speak about her. Um, and it felt, I felt much personally much more comfortable talking about it. But I did ask, before I did it, I did have a conversation with my dad. Um, and I said what I was going to do. And I explained and I reassured him that I wasn't only going to focus on her activism and come in the morn. I was going to look at her whole life story and look at how what she did afterwards. So I think like Fanula said, um, I imagine that she was what well, she was obviously disappointed because she was anti-treaty. So she wasn't very happy about the way in which the Irish Free State was established um, and the various kind of political governance of it in, in those early decades. But that didn't mean that she became um, um, a disruptor. Instead, she went on to get married and she had three children, including my dad. But she also remained working, interestingly, as an educator. So she was an external examiner for the National University of Ireland. And she was still doing that when she had young children. And she went on to join a number of women's organizations. And she got quite involved with the Dublin Playgroups Association, which was um, providing play areas for children of working class families that didn't have access. So she, she was obviously involved in kind of in, in a number of kind of social justice issues. Um, so when I explained to my dad that we were going to look, at, I was going to look at the whole story, he was much more comfortable with that. So I think if any of you are listening and you're worried about this, and I think you're right to be aware of it and to be conscious of it, having conversations with other family members before you do anything is a good idea. I think it's very important. Don't do it after the fact, because that obviously doesn't set the right tone. But you and sometimes having these conversations are wonderful. I'm so glad that I managed to have this conversation with my dad and also then do this work that I have since done on my grandmother before he died. And he was really proud, not only of the work, but he was I think it changed his relationship to his own mother in really quite a meaningful way and that might not have happened. But it's really important to have those conversations and to be sensitive to different um, uh, people's different feelings about what happened in the past. And have my dad said, actually, I really wouldn't want you to do this. I wouldn't have done it. You know, I I might have done it subsequent to his death, but I wouldn't have done it while he was alive because I would have had to respect that because it was his (laughs) mum. So 
I think that's very important to do because when I was doing the research on Margaret Skinner for the mm. biography that I wrote of her, I knew she had kept a daily diary, but obviously I couldn't find it anywhere. And then I discovered her executor, who was her nephew, had burnt it when she died because he didn't want her private life to make it into the history book. And that private life was a life shared with another woman, Nora O'Keefe, and Margaret had gone on after the... Um, rising in the revolutionary period to become a member of the INTO, ending up being its president in, in the mid-1950s and going off to the Philippines to represent the INTO. Um, and a very senior activist, one of her big campaigns was to end the marriage bar for married women teachers, which uh, was successful, and also equity of pay for unmarried male and married women teachers with married male teachers. Um, and uh, lots of issues like that. And she was also very dedicated to educating all students, including those who had intellectual disabilities or physical disabilities within the school system, which was quite ahead of her time. But I then met the next generation of family members who uh, were invited back in 2016 to participate in the Royal College of Surgeons commemoration. She was a, a member of that outpost in 1916. In fact, was one of the only women who was wounded during a, uh, a raid. She was, um, she was active. She was one of the few women who actually shot a rifle and had trained in the rifle clubs in Scotland that were set up for women in 1914 in case the, the Germans invaded. But as she says in her memoirs, she was learning how to fight for an entirely different enemy, not the Germans. Um, and she was a very good shot and said she saw many a man fall to her rifle. Very, very proud of that in her Doing My Bit for Ireland memoir, which was published in 1917, one of the first eyewitness accounts of um, the 1916 Rising. But the, the family members came back, and while they didn't have the diaries because they were destroyed, they had a huge photographic album. Uh, Margaret was an avid photographer and had cameras all of her life. So there's a detailed life of herself and Nora from 1919 when they meet until uh, Nora's death in the early 1950s um, and Margaret's continuing career as well. And they were so delighted to share it and talk about Margaret and Nora. And when I wrote the, the biography of Margaret, included a chapter on, on their relationship, they were delighted with that. So things do change within family histories. One generation might have felt, because of course they were the next generation after the Civil War and after the traumas. Um, and uh, you know, if you look at Holocaust studies, and they talk about generational inheritances of trauma to the second generation, even the third generation. So it does take a long time for that trauma and those um, ideas of, of keep, you know, let's not talk about that anymore. We, we have to leave that in the past and get on to work its way out. But I think this decade of centenaries has helped a lot of people. And I, I get that sense going around the country giving talks about my research, well, obviously interrupted by COVID, but before and after COVID. Uh, and a lot of this research is, is traumatic and, and heavy. But people then come up and tell me their stories about their families and they want to share and they want it to be public and they want to know the archives they can go to to find out more. Uh, including members of my own family who keep saying, have you found those pension files yet? And I'm like, even though there's hundreds of them released, ours haven't been yet. There's still more to come. And I have found some material, say, uh, when I was doing research about people that I know, that I know they'd be very upset if they saw it. And I haven't you know, published that research or shown that research. Mm -hmm. um, 
But if they ask me where to go and find the research, I will tell them, and then it's up to them to do what they, they want to do with it. Uh, but I do think, yes, we have to be careful, but we also have to write the histories. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yes, because and, and those histories, all different kinds of histories. So we, when we talk about activist women, which is one of the main focuses of the project that all three of us are working on at the moment, we're, we, we have a very broad um, definition of activism. So we've been talking a lot because it just happens to be our own experience about women who were members of Come on the Mon or involved in the national struggle. But of course, there were those who um, were on the other side, the kind of pro-treaty side, if you're looking from that angle. But we were just talking earlier about um, a woman like Kathleen Brown, who was a member of the... Um, blue blouses. Blue blouses, yes, the Irish equivalent of the blue, of the blue shirts. Yes. Um, so it, it's, and I think, again, another really important part of the decade of centenaries is that you do need, you can come back to these histories and, and you need to think about the context at that moment in time, which is something that we always do as historians, but family historians, and um, this is important as well, is is to think about well, think of how, what they were experiencing in that moment and how that impacted on, on how they thought about things and actions that they subsequently took. And it's important to, to understand those but also to have those difficult conversations. And speaking of conversations, um, I wrote an article um, for The Conversation, which is an online journal. We'll, we'll put the link in with the podcast. But I was also a bit nervous about that when that came out. So I sent the link to all of my cousins, um, as well as to my dad. And, um, and, I, and there was a little bit of some moments of, of oh gosh, were they going to like it? I hope they like it. I hope no one gets put out by it. But thankfully, I think, unless they didn't tell me, but um, mostly I got very nice comments back from the family about it and, and they're sharing it with their kids so no, more of their kids know about what their um, uh, great-grandmother got up to um, so that, that's been really good but, it's, but having these kind of conversations and talking about things um, is important so as I said, one, as we said earlier, one of the, the purposes of the podcast, um, and for those of you who are listening in, and, and thank you for your time, is to think about, well, you know, we've been talking about how we've uncovered some of our own um, family history. And then, of course, this is our jobs anyway, all three of us as historians, is um, how might you go about on uncovering some of these histories yourselves um, and as I said it could be that you're looking at some women and men of course in your families and your communities and um, some of you might be members of women's organizations such as we've mentioned we're working with the Irish Country Women's Association and Sir Optimist Ireland and of course you know those organizations are full of members who will no doubt have been active um, in other groups and in other ways and um, you know right from the beginning of the 20th century so um, we wanted to share some ideas with you that, you know, that we have found useful in our own research. And then just a reminder, though, that anything we mention here, we will have links to those sources um, when the podcast is published. We're really very fortunate now in the, the wealth of material that's available now for this research um, and that so much of it is digitized um, and can be accessed anywhere. One of the most significant um, resources um, that many of us are using these days is um, what we mentioned briefly already, the military service pension collection. So these are pensions which are um, held in the military archives in Dublin. Um, and they are going through a process of digitization, um, which is almost, but not quite complete. Um, but there are thousands upon thousands of records there. Each application um, contains often hundreds of pages. Um, and what's fascinating is they tell us a huge amount about life, um, people's experiences and what they did during the revolution, during the War of Independence, the Easter Rising, the Civil War. But even more importantly, perhaps for this project, about what they did afterwards. And so their pension was calculated on 
and um, their socioeconomic circumstances afterwards. Um, and so they provide detail on their lives and their children, what work they're burning in. And so you really get a sense um, of what happened to them in those decades afterwards and what their lives look like um, what the fallout of some of these events were um, and what it meant. And you get sense of emigration. So you see so many addresses of people who moved to, to England, moved to America, um, and so many examples of, um, of hardship, um, of poverty and of difficulty, um, as well as, of course, some, some of people who um, went on to very prominent, successful careers. And I think what's worth noting there is that you'll find women not only in pension applications that they're making in their own right as members of Common Amman, but also in applications that they're putting in as dependents of people who were killed um, during these events. And often in those applications, they will refer to what they themselves did, even if they're primarily making an application as the brother or as the sister rather, or the widow or the daughter of somebody. They'll all say, well, I, I did my bit. I provided a safe house. I um hid guns i um brought messages um and so they're trying to show their their patriotism their loyalty um but they're also asking that the state support them saying you know i did the state some service um the state owes me um and you know they're really quite personal letters in many cases um pleading letters about difficult circumstances um, and so it's a really fascinating, rich resource for anyone interested in individual lives of individuals following specific families or places. And you can search by location as well as by name, but also anybody interested in the social history of 20th century Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, there's just so much there. Um, it's a really fantastic resource. There's lots of other um, um, examples of sources that are available. Um, Katrina mentioned her um, grandmother's um, Bureau of Military History witness statement earlier. This is again um, digitized sources of material held in the military archives. And these are really wonderful statements. There's 1700 of them. They give a really rich insight into people's experiences during the revolutionary period and also to some extent afterwards. There's wonderful stories in there. Um, lots of lots of really um, fantastic um, um, funny stuff um, in there um, about people being interned and complaining about the quality of the tea in the English jails, about them escaping through the wax museum in Dublin from the Easter Rising and coming across all of these these wax figures and thinking they were real people. Um, there's wonderful riches in there and they're really great insight into women's experience during that time. Um, there's still a minority of, of women in there. But it's more than we are have collected in any any other way. Um, for people interested in the the First World War, if you perhaps have a have an ancestor who might have served in those, um, the British Red Cross um, archive from the First World War is available online and can be searched by place or by person, um, and is an absolutely fantastic resource. And it's possible now to um, access digitised material held in the London Na um, National Archives. So for tracing First World War um, ancestors in the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, for example, um, we'll put up a list of all of these resources. But, um, you know, even without having to step foot um, in the National Library, which um, you should all do anyway, yes. um, or in Dublin City um, archives or in or any UCD of the archives. or UCD archives or any of the many places where there are um, wonderful collections of, of letters and personal material. There's so much you can do to start with um, from home.
Yeah, um, and I would absolutely agree with that. And, and actually, the thing to do is to combine those sources and also to look at things like the census records. Um, and fortunately, um, coming up in three years' time, we'll have the 1926 census. So that will give us a, a deeper understanding of what happened in post-revolutionary Ireland, wh what women were leaving, what men were leaving, what circumstances they were living in, you know, your three years after the end of the Civil War. Of course, they didn't take a census in 1921 because uh, there was a little thing going on, the War of Independence. But for example, at the moment, I'm working on the Kathleen Lynn diaries, and I'm combining that with her Bureau of Military History statement and newspaper reports um, that you can you get in which she's mentioned in the you know foundation of St. Dalton's Hospital for Sick Infants. I use those that material not just to write about herself as an activist, but also about her private life because she shared that with Madeleine French Mullen. And so in her, the first um, sentences in her Bureau of Military History talk about when she meets, as she says, Miss French Mullen. And it was when she was teaching a first aid course as a doctor to the Cumminamon women who had just been set up. And Miss French Mullen was uh, in the audience learning how to be um, first aid, which she put to very good effect as the senior first aid member in the Royal College of Surgeons to operate on Mar Margaret Skinner when she was shot three times. And they saved her life. Um, you know, they, they thought she was going to die because she had been so badly wounded. But these are very interesting anecdotes and stories that come through in all these. Now, there's a few sources that are behind paywalls, but you can take out a month's payment on um, subscription to something like findmypast.ie that has records of uh, courts of inquiry and the Easter Rising records and, and what happened during the War of Independence from the state side, from the administration side. Or the Irish Newspapers Archive is a fantastic resource. Now, it, uh, if you go, local libraries will have it for free, so you can go into local libraries and do your research there. But every small town in the country had a daily, if not weekly, newspaper. Um, so they were the social media of the day, the Twitter and the Insta and all of that of the day. And so they reported on absolutely everything that was going on, you know, uh, from uh, traumatic episodes of war. Uh, now, some of them were suppressed during the War of Independence, but they come back again in the 1920s to, you know, who's winning at the local farmers festivals and things like that of growing vegetables. And they talk about uh, women's rights and they talk about campaigning to keep the price of milk down when the Irish Housewives Association were doing those campaigns. They also talk about, you know, things like the, the big campaigns that the feminists have against the 1937 Constitution and the Women in the Home Articles, which we are still talking about today because we will have a referendum on them um, probably before the end of the year. So, um, you know, use that Irish uh, um, newspaper's archive. It's fascinating. And there's a, a radical newspaper's archives as well. So you see the um, newsletters and news sheets of the organizations, the more radical organizations that were publishing their own news sheets because they weren't getting their stuff into the mainstream papers. So, you know, the people of that time, particularly the women activists, were not so much so different from us women activists today. They were using ways and means of getting their message out and what they were campaigning for and what was of interest to them in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and on into the Irish Republic um, and, and the next generations of activists who were starting. And, and all of this material, which we'll provide links to, you can layer on 
and create full, really interesting histories. Um, sometimes you find nothing, and that's the nature of historical research. But a lot of the time you will find enough to make it worth the while putting in the effort to find uh, your, his, your own family history or community history. It's, yeah, it is detective work. It really is investigative work. Maybe that's what we should call the podcast for the, you know, the, the family history detectives or something. We could set up our own agency. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. But yeah, I think just Mary there mentioned the, um, the newspaper archives. And, and when I was doing some work on the campaign against the 1937 Constitution and, the, and art, particularly Article 41.2, um, I found more information in local newspapers than I did in the, in the Irish Times and kind of national newspapers. So they're definitely a great source. And then for for members who are listening who might be members of women's organisations and, and as I said, we were saying before, kind of our partner groups um, um, the Irish Country Women's Association um, or the Seroptimus organisations had their own journals and magazines and newsletters and these may be kept by in, 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 within organisational archives and one of the things we hope to work more with these groups is to think about how they share their archives and how they curate and, and protect their archives. Um, but many of those publications are also available in the National Library and um, some may be digitised. So you can do catalogue searches um, around the titles of those um, journals um, and these can be really helpful. And, and, um, and, and I, year, the ICA, I have a few because I found them at home in my grandmother's papers. The ICA had um, often produced kind of um, annuals um, and on big, big centenary dates, they would produce um, their own histories. And I've found them really useful in the work that I've done. But don't forget, I started, we started off the podcast by talking about those boxes of photos maybe that were up in your attic or under a bed gathering dust. So don't forget those. Um, and photos play a huge role. I mean, they keep coming back and, and you know, Mary described that rather sort of traumatic photograph of, of the, um, the, 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 the burial, the gravesite one. Yeah. And, and as I said, this photo of my own grandmother with the rifle caused a fair amount of consternation. Um, when we first discovered it. So photographs um, are really great sources. And one of the wonderful things now about family papers, photos and letters and diaries, whatever it might be, is that with the, with the introduction of new technology, and particularly camera phones, um, you can just take photos of those photos or papers, and then you have them yourself as a digital archive. And it can get over some of those perhaps awkward conversations you might worry about within families of who gets to keep what and who owns which papers. And that, you know, and, and I sort of, I'm kind of, we're kind of grinning here talking about that, but they can, those can get messy. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, and there's, there are ownership issues. So what I think is really wonderful is if you're calling round to a relative's house and you've, they've told you that they have a box of photos, just bring along your phone or your iPad and then just take photos and the qualities really can be really great. And then you have that archive and you can print those out, really high quality versions of them. So that should get over some of that awkwardness and we don't want any falling out after this podcast. That would, that's not our intention whatsoever. Um, in my own case, what actually has been really lovely as well is actually doing this research in my grandmother has, has brought me closer to my cousin. So my grandmother had three children, my dad and then two daughters, um, Moira and Helen. And in doing some of this work around her life, one, one of my cousins had already done quite a lot of research on her, but it's actually created new conversations between us. And, and we talk a lot more and we kind of WhatsApp each other about what we have found. And sometimes it's putting together the pieces. That's what I think I love. And you know, we talk about being detectives. And um, so just a few weeks ago, Margaret Ward, who's a wonderful historian and has, you know, one of, kind of the groundbreakers around the history of Common the Mon with her wonderful book on manageable revolutionaries. And um, she's doing some research on women in Common the Mon members in the 
the north and she found a letter from my grandmother in the, see it's all coming together, in the pensions uh, archive where my grandmother was asked to write a letter proving that this woman, who I'm sorry her name escapes me, that she was an active member of Come in the Moan and therefore she was arguing that her application for a pension should be supported. And Margaret has, she took a photo of that and she sent it to me. So no, I've been able to add that letter to our collection. So you slowly, you, you build up these collections and you can share them and you can all have a copy without any wrangling over who owns what. The other places I just, just speaking about um, my grandmother was um, because she was involved in the National University Women Graduates Association, I was able to find out about some of her activities in the universe in UCD archives. Um, and I think UCD now has digitized quite a lot of archives depending on the collection. So that's another place that you can visit and find out um, um, if, if, if someone was a graduate of the, of, of, um, from UCC or UCD or University College Galway, that they may have been involved in the Graduates Association. So that could be interesting. As a, we've talked about the National Library of Ireland has many wonderful digital resources. And indeed, that was where I found kind of by accident the uh, minutes of the speech that my grandmother made at the 1922 convention when Common the Mon split. No one in the family knew that existed. And I pure by chance. So even though, you know, I'm, I'm a long experienced historian, stuff happens by chance as well. And there's quite a lot. There's a bit of luck involved in this research, too. Again, we'll put the link to that. But so you could have a look and see if you recognize any of the names. There was a lot of speeches, really important speeches on both sides, very heartfelt. Just a word, another word of caution, because there's a few cautionary notes in, in our podcast, is about looking after those archives. So um, I, I, they do need looking after. And there's a wonderful blog by Louise O'Connor of the National Library of Ireland um, that has some useful tips, particularly for family archives and the do's and don'ts of looking after those archives. So um, we'll certainly put a link up to Louise's blog and you can have a look at that as well. They do need caring for um, and just to be kept in kind of secure. So maybe you know, the box in the attic, um, the old suitcase under the bed may not be the best place for them. Um, although that's another reason for arguing, taking images of your archives, because for now, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but for now, then that makes them very protected. Um, hopefully that we can all like, access that software in you know, I don't know, 50 years time, but let's not worry about that. The last we wanted to say was about objects. Be open-minded about what an archive item is. So there's your, you know, your classic ones, which is a, a, a written document um, or a letter or a diary, something like that. But objects um, and material cultures, and Mary mentioned this earlier, are important too. And just for example, and I, I actually do have it in my hand, the others can bear witness. I have my grandmother's common the mom badge or pin, which some of you may be familiar with, but it's a really beautiful design. We were just talking earlier, we don't actually know who designed it. And, if someone knows, maybe they might tell us. But it's a, so it's a rifle. It's a common theme. Um, and then it's got the, the letters C, N, A, M, B intertwined around the and weaved around the rifle. Um, and I was very lucky. One of my cousins very, very kindly passed that on to me. Um, so there will be objects around your house that, and um, home that will tell stories of their own, that, that you can just, that the story will be there or the story around the object. So you don't, it doesn't have to be a written text. So, um, so and as we've already said, how important photos are. So there's lots of different ways in which you can um, start piecing together the, um, the lives of those in your family and particularly lives around activism. So I think we're about ready to wind up. We 
would like to thank you, I think, from the, on behalf of the three of us very much for listening. We hope you have found our stories and recollections. I'm still wondering where all those violins are. I think yes. that's just going to... I'd never really thought about that before. Yes. Thanks, Mary. There's a big violin gap now. Yeah. You know. um, so we hope that that is useful. And, and we will provide, um, as we've said a few times, a, a detailed list of some of the links, direct links to the archives, so that you yourselves can start some of your own detective work around your own family history. And we should mention that this is the first of at least two, if not more, podcasts, because we're enjoying ourselves so much. Um, and we certainly are. We hope you are too. So watch the space. We will be posting the podcast on the History Hub site that's attached to UCD. Um, and we will publicise it via Twitter and other places. Um, and we'll be hopefully sharing it as well through the ICA and through Sir Optimus Ireland's our kind of research partners. So it'll be available on their websites too. So I think I'd let my fellow podcastees say their goodbyes. Well, thank you all for listening. It's been um, uh, great fun talking about um, how we do our research because it isn't often you get to talk about doing research as a historian and how it impacts on you yourself, particularly when thinking about your own family history. A lot of people think we are all, you know, objective all the time. And of course, that's not true because you do get impacted by the research you're doing, particularly if it's it's trauma research, like some of the stuff that we do. Um, But also if it's it's family history research, because, you, you know, we're historians for a reason. And usually it starts when you're younger as a kid with listening to family stories. Uh, and then develops into a career, which is great. Um, so it's been really enjoyable talking about this because I, I don't get often to talk about my own family history and my own family research that I've done and the bits and pieces, although my mother would say I don't do half enough and I haven't pulled it all together yet. Uh, you know, um, but that's the problem with having a full time job, um, you know, and having to do other things. Uh, yes, talking about the afterlives is the new Uh, I suppose, thing we need to do now after this decade of centenaries, because their lives don't stop at 1923. And I remember when I was writing the Margaret Skinner biography, I found an article somebody had written about her, uh, which told a very interesting story about being a sniper and born in the War of Independence and then applying for her pension and being refused in the first instance because she wasn't a man, even though she'd been wounded and almost killed. Uh, She did get it in the 1930s, so don't worry, she did get her pension in the end. And said, and after that, then she settled down to life as a teacher and didn't do much else. And she had an amazingly interesting afterlife. And I think we have to understand that these women's lives didn't end at the end of the Civil War. Um, Even if they aren't hugely involved in activism, they're running families, they're, you know, bringing up children in a new country. It's a new country and it's a very exciting and traumatic time and how they did that and how they managed their relationship with what was effectively a very conservative, misogynistic, free state that was, as many people have said, no country for women. Uh, And I find that fascinating. And, And even looking at the lives of my own family members who who did that, who, who, you know, started having families in the 20s and 30s and 40s um, and and how they and the next generation related to their histories. Um, And I I think I will continue working on that part of my own family history, probably for the rest of my life, because it is fascinating. So do look in your attics and do ask older family members and uh, gathering oral histories is very much part of this as well.
Yeah, I think one of the things that's really come out from all of this is just how much there is still to do. You know, we've gone through this period of the decade of centenaries and it's been a really great starting point and it's been made so much more resources available to researchers. But it's not over yet. There's still so much more that can be done and so much now that can be done, I say, into looking into what happens to these women afterwards, what their lives were like um, in, in in the new states that emerged. I hope you've enjoyed um, listening to us talk about the challenges, um, um, but also the excitement of doing this research. Um, we mentioned earlier that historical research is um, a little bit like being a detective, and there certainly is an element to that of you know chasing sources, um, um, you know going to multiple different archives, um, searching for a person through time, and that is that is the fun of it. Um, and it's also like doing a jigsaw, where you're trying to put all the pieces together and. Um, to fill in the gaps and to to try and see what the what the story was. Um, so the others have mentioned the importance of um, looking for family sources, looking for material at home, and also talking to people in your family, gathering those stories now. Um, if you have objects at home and there's somebody there who might still know something about them, record their stories and keep them with keep those recordings with the object as well. I think we'll say goodbye, but also say we're just getting started. Yes. So thank you all. Bye.